hope is something that you gotta fight like hell to keep. One in a million, a million, the one villain. Too hot to be in the kitchen. I'll end up melting the ceiling. Dude named Derek Hamilton. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast. I got a clip here for him. Dude spent 20 years in jail over false murder convictions. Bro, 20 years of his life. It's an honor to meet you, Derek, especially after such high praise. So t tell me your story. Like, how did uh, what happened to you? Well, thanks for having me. And Josh, thanks for the accolades. Um, you know, I was a 17-year-old kid running around Brooklyn at a time when Brooklyn was uh, terrible. And I was a product of my environment. I was doing little robberies and, you know, little dumb stuff that adolescents do. And I got on the radar of the police department. Uh, they used to search me all the time, pat me down, you know, throw me up on a car, regular stuff that happened in that community. Um, one day, uh, a man was killed about 5 a.m. by some older guys in the neighborhood. Uh, the police had an identification of their car. They called the guy in, and he somehow told them he rented me the car and that I was the one that bought the car back and told him that I had committed the crime and that I had shot the guy by accident. Um, and that was my first real experience with the criminal justice system because it was a murder. Um, I'm like, murder? You know, I did a couple of robberies. I, you know, I did some petty stuff, but murder, that's not me. So, um, you know, what was amazing? To me you know, um, something about his story, right, lets me know that, like, you know, this is something that I had to learn a long time ago. Like, because I got into trouble a lot. I was in police cars back and forth, back and forth for the dumbest stuff. Like, the dumbest things I would find myself in the police car. I just could not follow any rules. I would be showing up in places that banned me, told me I couldn't come back. I would just show up and sneak in. And next thing you know, I'm in a police car. I just stole something from school. I'm in a police car. You know, all kind of stuff, right? And one thing I learned, like, after all this time, and especially being locked up with other guys who have been through so many different things, you hear a lot of stories of people just wrong place, wrong time, wrong place, wrong time. And realize once I got grown and I started, like, getting wiser, I realized that if I don't have to be out and about doing things that are not necessary, I'd much rather just be home. Like, if, if me and my wife isn't going somewhere, like, to the store or, like, to get something to eat or whatever the case may be, why am I just hanging out, right? And he's 17 years old. So, to, to him, being out in the streets or whatever, that's his day-to-day -day life. That's just what we do do that's that's what it's done so you never know if you're going to be the wrong person at the wrong place at the wrong time and in his case apparently it cost him 20 years but murder that's not me so um you know what was amazing to me is number one um nobody would have gave me their car at 17 years old yeah that is another biggest thing right and david brings up a good point right imagine getting the death penalty for a murder you didn't commit and this is one of the 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 vital pushbacks against the death penalty uh some people will argue that the death penalty should be reserved for just those people who are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt but there are people in my opinion who go to prison because they are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt even though they're innocent so are we willing to have the death penalty even if that means accidentally killing innocent people or would we rather allow guilty people to live for the sake of not killing one innocent person? That's a very good question. And that's something that I would wrestle with. And at the same time, I don't necessarily think that we live in a country where we can't 
afford to take care of prisoners because we do it all the time. Especially if we ended the drug war, we'd have an excess of cash to take care of the hardcore criminals who are really murderers and rapists and, th- uh, and things of that sort. So, I mean, it's not beyond our capability, right? And I, I'll be, put it here. I'm not really a big fan of the death penalty. I don't think it's something that we need. But at the same time, I'm not speaking from a place of somebody who lost somebody because somebody murdered them or raped them or whatever the case may be. And I can get that perspective. But these rules and laws should not be made on emotional vengeance or anything of that sort. It should be made on like what's practical, what's logical, and how, what kind of society do we want to live in? Amazing to me is number one, um, nobody would have gave me their car at 17 years old, right? Any cop would have known that this guy wouldn't have gave me his car. Um, but they arrested me and they charged me with murder. Um, and I was convicted uh, by a jury because mm. they admitted grand jury testimony of a witness who came before the court and said, I never seen this guy at all. The police made me lie in the grand jury and say that I seen this guy. I'm not testifying. I refuse to testify. I'm not going to get up there and perjure myself. Uh, the judge told the prosecutor that day that they were dismissing the case. All right, so what ended up happening is somebody ended up in a situation where the police pressured them to say one thing or write a statement. And instead, of, they wrote that statement. And when it came time to testify, that person realized, like, okay, I wrote this statement, but I didn't know I was going to have to testify because y'all told me probably I just write the statement. It is what it is. But now you're, you're telling me to go up and commit perjury, and I'm not going to do that, right? And that immediately should have raised hella suspicion, hella suspicion. And it's sad that that wasn't the nail in the coffin to be like, okay, we can't go through with convicting this guy. Read Just uh, just Mercy by Brian Steven. It's a pretty crushy death for actual murderers, too. Yeah, a pretty crushy death for actual murderers. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people need to live with what they've done. And sometimes that's the worst punishment a person can have. That if they don't get another witness, this case is going out of here. Um, What's up, Dave? The judge's name was Lombardo back then. This was 1983. Um, I went back to on that day. We came back the next day. And the judge said that he thought about this all night. And he felt that the only person would benefit from this witness not testifying would be me. Now, it's very clear. This guy, uh, he, he was in New York. I'm not sure uh, what 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 the laws were at the time but uh there was the but it's easily like stuff like this can happen all the time and people get death penalties all the time for like stuff they didn't even do so i mean this guy i wouldn't call him lucky because he paid a horrible price for something he didn't do but compared to like a lot of other people who were like falsely convicted and you you know like elaine said it herself she changed her mind after considering that same thing and you know dave you know absolutely uh, victims and the people who are closest to something are usually not the best people to be making decisions. And I feel that way in all situations, even when it comes to like politics and, and legislation. Sometimes when people are emotionally impacted by something personally, they're like the last people you want making decisions, especially when it's going to have implications for a, a wide variety of people. Uh, chat, you ever see the movie Hurricane, the one that song is about? Oh, you asked in the chat. <laughs> a death or a death seen unreasonable when you could be mistaken. Absolutely. 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 Police pressure you nonstop until you plead guilty. They give you better deals to say you're guilty than actually going through a trial and getting harsher sentences. So many plead guilty or guilty or not. Just on the sheer fact that it's more expensive and most people in a criminal 
case can't afford a lawyer. And the fact that you can't afford a lawyer, you get a public defendant. And public defendants, and it's really not their fault, but public defendants have such a heavy caseload that to them it makes sense to try to get the best deal they can. So they push a lot of plea deals on a lot of people. And sometimes it saves the court money, it saves the prosecutor money, and it saves the um, public defendant money to push through a lot of um, a lot of plea deals. But what's even crazier is you have the right to a fair trial in this country. But what I really find to be crazy is the fact that if you decide to go to trial, you somehow get harsher sentences for losing. I mean, that automatically persuades people not to go to trial, even if they feel like they're innocent, because they know that they will be punished even harsher, even though they have a right to a fair trial. You're, you're punishing somebody for practicing their right. And I, I really don't like that concept. Therefore, he was going to allow the prosecutor to admit their grand jury testimony as evidence <laughs> in chief at my trial. And I would forfeit my. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, let's see. Eric Sinclair, so are you sure you're a conservative? <laughs> are you like, is that, is, that, is that a serious question? Or like, are we all. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are you asking me or are you asking somebody in the chat? Let me make sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that was funny. I just had to read that. All right to confront the witness and let the jury hear the truth that she never saw the crime. So that was my first real experience. I was a young knucklehead. The lawyer that I had at the time, Candace Kurtz, said, look, young man, get your head out your ass and you better read these cases and you better see what's going on like they're railroading you. She took the stand and told the judge what the witness told <laughs> All right, so uh, Eric said, I mean, yes, it's serious, but slightly joking. All right, so uh, I think I'm pretty sure I'm conservative. I mean, the one thing I noticed the most is, like, uh, a lot of conservatives, when, when, when one person say conservative, some people are talking about, like, Republican Party, total line conservative. Wherever the Republican Party is, that's where they are. Then other people say conservative. They're talking about, like, political philosophy, like, uh, what their fundamental presuppositions are, what their foundation is when it comes to like government and the role of government and what kind of society we want to live in. I am pretty conservative when it comes to the philosophical side of conservatism. That doesn't mean that I don't have uh, other views that deviate from the Republican Party or like mainstream conservatives. Like uh, I'm against the war on drugs. I don't support the death penalty. Those are things that I don't, and, and honestly, I don't think those align with my personal uh, conservative values. And, you know, I could go through and explain why, uh, but I'm going to try to stick on topic. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I think if you talk to a lot, if, like if you talk to 100 conservatives, you're probably going to find that every one of those conservatives disagrees somewhere on something. And, and even with liberals and stuff like that, they're going to disagree somewhere with something. But uh, mostly we consider ourselves to be whatever, like, our fundamental, like, ideal of what role of government is and how we approach it, you know? <laughs> uh, my values align more with conservatism, traditionalism. I figured that much about you, Mike. My husband and I are both conservatives, but we're in the opposite side of the death penalty. Yeah, so, like, and there's always room and space. There should always be room and space for conservatives, liberals to disagree amongst themselves and hash out some of these things because we shouldn't just be trying to like win arguments against 
those people on the other side, we should also be trying to sharpen each other and to like get down to the bottom of why we agree with certain things and how we can better ourselves as conservatives as well. You know, all right. Y'all done deviated from Derek Hamilton. Let me see. What told we- her. Um, and, and, and I was convicted. I was sentenced to 25 years of life. Um, and it was at that moment that I know that I had to study law, that I had to really dig deep in, in the books. And I did it. New York State, uh, thank God, had a law library. They had all the books in the world. All you had to do was apply yourself. And I spent the next five and six years working on my case. Uh, in 1987, the appellate division in that case found that the judge had no evidence whatsoever that me or anybody acting on my behalf had threatened this witness, did anything improper. And then- You know, this is like... All right, I don't, I don't know how many people watching this have ever done time. Like, not like three days locked up or two days locked up. I'm talking like done time, like years, right? You might find yourself being like very hopeless at time because part of it feels as if life is passing you by. And I can't even speak to what this guy's going through, right? I'm not even facing 25 to life while I'm doing time. Like, this guy on one hand all he has is time to do this so it's like you might as well do it but on the other hand hope is something that you gotta fight like hell to keep because not only while you're trying to beat your case the mentality of being locked up running across all these different guys from these different areas and these different mindsets that you have to deal with every day at any given time one thing could go wrong and things can end horribly for you or for somebody else the interactions with the guards and the officers, just the, the the whole politics of being locked up. He's dealing with all of that at the same time, trying to hold on to hope that he could somehow, while he's literally helpless, because he don't have like money back in him or anything, that he gonna somehow set this right. That takes a certain personality, right? And everybody ain't got that. And the judge was right. There was no evidence that, that can prove that. So they reversed the conviction uh, and I was able to get out of prison uh, after six and a half years, unbeknownst to me, there was a rogue cop by the name of Louis Garcella who felt that I didn't do enough time for this conviction. He didn't like the appellate division decision. Eight months later, I was in New Haven, Connecticut at a unisex salon that I had owned at the time. Uh, he came in that store and arrested me, told me I was going back to Brooklyn for a murder. Um, and I'm like, a murder? Like, this can't be true. Like, again? Like, you know, how, how many times has this happened? I uh, went to New York. Wow. Um, I was so this man got out, started going back to live his life, and he going back to jail for the same murder. Wow! Again, like you know, how, how many times this happened? I uh, went to New York. Um, I was processed. Uh, about a year later, I went to trial. I was convicted. They brought a witness in by the name of Jew Smith, who said that she was present at the murder when her boyfriend was killed that I was a gunman, I had a gun in my hand, and I shot this individual several times with this gun. Um, but her original statement to the police said she wasn't there, that she never saw this crime. She was around the corner at a store. Wow. When she came back, her boyfriend was dead. The jury never heard that statement. But in any event... This is why you need a good lawyer. Like, I can't stress this enough. Good lawyers make the world a difference when it comes to a person doing time. Not only... Does it change the fact that you might do time? Even if you do time, a good lawyer is probably going to get you less time. And sometimes these things are so far apart as black and white. Like a good lawyer, a paid lawyer will go above and beyond. They work for you. 
and their whole job is to get the best for you. And if this guy would have had a paid lawyer, he probably would have never did this time. I really do believe that. When she came back, her boyfriend was dead. The jury never heard that statement. But in any event, um, the ballistics evidence proved that this guy was shot with two different guns, that he wasn't shot in the building where she said he was shot at, but he was shot outside in the street. Uh, despite this evidence, I was convicted. Uh, after I was convicted was when I learned that she had first told the cops at the crime scene. She never saw the crime, but she had told it to a different detective. Right. So I made a pro se motion to set aside the verdict. And in the motion, I argue that this detective that never came in that she gave the statement uh, to could prove my innocence. And the judge ordered a hearing for a year. He said, I can't give this guy a day in jail, let alone uh, 15 years, which was the minimum. I want this witness to come back. The prosecutor said, I'm not calling him. And the judge said, if you don't call her back, this case is going to a new trial, right? They called her back and she admitted. I don't know why you're going to a new trial. They should have mistrialed it. It should have been a mistrial, not a new trial, a mistrial. I mean, I guess a new trial is better than just convicting the man outright, but it should have been a mistrial. The, the moment you start to figure out that all of these pieces are like not adding up, it's like, okay, mistrial. That she never saw the crime, that the detective Louis Garcella told her what happened and told her that if she didn't get up here and say that I committed the crime, she was going to jail. She was on parole. Her boyfriend was a felon that just got out. She had kids. They said, you're going to jail. She said, what was I supposed to do? Here's the system telling me this, that if I don't come in and say this, I'm going to jail. And I came in and said it. Uh, the judge ruled. I don't know. Like, well, whoever, when, when cops do stuff like this, when cops circumvent the system and the way it's supposed to work in order to get convictions, for whatever reason, there has to be legal consequences. Like, especially when it comes to stuff like, if we can prove that you intentionally did this, knowing full well that the story wasn't what you said it was, and you went out of your way to make the story what it was, I think you should have to do that time. Like, whatever you're trying to put on this person, you should have to take it on. Maybe not as drastic, but when you talk about playing with somebody's life like that, that and you're supposed to be, like, the person who's supposed to protect and serve. But on the other hand, you are manipulating the system in order to get a certain outcome. And say this, I'm going to jail. And I came in and said it. Uh, the judge ruled a year later that, again, he felt that I was, he said there was a common thread of strings. I manipulated this evidence. Again, I called the detective. The detective came in and said exactly what the witness said, that she told him she didn't see the crime, that she was beat up and took to the priest and then told she was going to jail. And had that jury heard that, there'd have been different results. At the, at the trial, they told the jury that her first statement was the most important statement in this case. And that when the police arrived on the scene, she didn't hesitate. She said, Derek mm -hmm. Hamilton, somebody I know my entire life committed the crime, which wasn't true. In fact, she said the truth, which she didn't see the crime, that she was somewhere else. Um, I was sentenced to 25 years of life. Uh, I filed numerous post-conviction motions after post-conviction motions. Every time a judge gave me a hearing, every time he said he can throw the case out, every time he said he was troubled by this conviction, uh, the prosecutor would come in and tell him I'm a bad guy. You know, that's true. Um, sometimes they'll find a way to charge you with multiple charges for one thing. Like when I got arrested, for example, they can hit you. They hit me with uh, possession of a firearm but also possession of a firearm in the commission of a crime, but also having a firearm under the age of 18, right? So, like, you can get hit with multiple different charges for the same thing, right? And they'll put everything they possibly can on there to see whichever is going to stand the light of day once it all comes out the wash. 
That is so true. And it's just, it's just wrong. I, I'm not, I think our justice system and our police for the most part are good and try to do the right thing. It's the bad ones. And I think most cops agree and most people in the legal system agree that when those people do the worst, they make it bad for everybody else. And no one person should have to suffer because of corruption. It's just not right, especially when these people are hired by taxpayer dollars to protect people. And that means protecting innocent people from being charged as guilty. You know, but it's complicated and I understand. But I'm talking about those cops that go above and beyond to do the wrong thing, not cops who make the mistakes or put down the wrong thing or, you know, I'm talking about cops who go above and beyond to literally manipulate the system to get a certain outcome. That this is not somebody you want to release, that, you know, they, they put imagined harms and make a judge think that I was the most terrible person in the world. And he would deny the motion every single time. Um, you know, I filed numerous motions, numerous post-convictions. I did everything you could imagine uh, to prove my innocence, but to no avail. Uh, I began going to parole board around 2009. Uh, it was a very traumatic experience for me because at that time, the parole board wanted me to admit guilt, and I wasn't going to do that. I'm not going to come in and say I killed somebody I didn't kill. I'm not doing that. I don't care what you say. And I had to challenge them and fight them for two years. Uh, and then my family went out in protest and we got a daily news article put out that said that I will be free if the court would just basically give me justice. If they just give this guy a fair shot, he'd be home. So it changed the, the mentality of the parole board. They looked at all of my evidence and they said, you know, based on the evidence that you presented here. Now, I know I said earlier that I wasn't like an activist, right? <laughs> So if something ever happened and I'm falsely convicted, I need all y'all activists to come on my behalf. <laughs> like, I need <laughs> calling all activists, right? <laughs> um, we believe in your innocence. Like, this evidence speaks for itself. Even the judge said you was innocent. I don't know what you're doing here all these years. And they released me. And at that point, I began a crusade. Because when I was in prison, there were several guys. We, we built something called the Actual Innocence Team. Guys who I was working in the law library. So I would read guys' case and, and check them out. So what I had to do was get families together, get people to come together and bring their families and say, look, let's send these people to City Hall. <laughs> Let them know there's a lot of us in here. It's not just me. It's white, it's black. There's a bunch of us in here that got the same issue, that they're procedurally barring us. They're not looking at our case. They're just kicking it into the garbage. We don't want to hear it. Get out of here, right? Because they can. They had the power. So when we start bringing attention to these cases, it changed the whole dynamic. So yeah, when I right. got out, I joined that group, Family and Friends of the Romans Convictions, uh, we had a PR guy by the name of Lonnie Sori who was helping us keep it together. And we just began blasting the prosecutors. We began protesting outside their offices and getting rid of them. Uh, the first one we was able to get rid of was Charles Hines in Brooklyn, the prosecutor. So this guy, instead of like getting out and deciding like, okay, I'm free now. I'm just going to go and live my life. This guy decided to pay all that for it, to channel all of the wrongdoing that he had to go through to start bringing justice to people who had been similar or going through similar things that he's going through. Right. And who's to say exactly if this thing was better for him or worse for him, because he said he was, you know, getting involved in a little petty stuff before he got arrested. Who knows what kind of path he would have went down. Right. He could have literally got killed. He could have been become a, a big robber or something that got charged. Who knows? what would have happened. Or he could have been an upstanding citizen after he got his head knocked a few times. Who knows? But now he's sitting on the Joe Rogan podcast 
talking probably millions of people seeing this man speak, hearing his story. And he's inspiring people. And he's also out there working. Like sometimes, and this is what I try to explain to people. Suffering and pain is not always a bad thing. Life can be miserable. Life can be hard. It's how you channel that and what you allow it to do for you that can make you even better than you would have been without those hardships. So I don't live my life personally trying to avoid suffering or pain. I try to learn from other people's suffering and pain, but also I try to channel all of the stuff I've been through in my life and use it for something good, which this is how I ended up with a YouTube channel and countless other things that I participate in. But you got to do the same thing in your life. Find whatever it is that you suffer through and find a way to channel that into something productive and something positive. Outside the offices and getting rid of them. Uh, the first one we was able to get rid of was Charles Hines in Brooklyn, the prosecutor that sent me to prison. We was able to remove him and put a progressive prosecutor in that agreed that he would look at these convictions if he was elected. So he got in and in two years, he exonerated 22 people. And he found that it was a systemic racist problem in Brooklyn that was convicting the wrong people. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, the New York Times reporter called me and I believe it was 2012. And they said, why are people afraid of the police? I just said, are you kidding me? Why are they afraid of the police? And I told them names of guys that I knew that was in prison that this cop set up. And <laughs> a lawyer had contacted me and said that he was working on a case which this cop framed another guy by the name of David Ranta. And he said, in two weeks, there's going to be an article in New York Times that exposed this cop. And I told the New York Times reporter that. And I said, look, in two weeks, if it comes out, you come back to me and I'll take you to these guys. And she came back, Francis Robert. She came back. And I took it to these guys. She got the prosecutor to agree to look at 50 of these cops' cases, 50 of them. And, um, you know, 20 was exonerated so far, those guys. And um, I was exonerated in 2015 and 2014 for the first time in uh, New York history. I wonder how much, I wonder if he sued the um, state and I wonder how much money he got or if he's going to get money. Sometimes it takes years and years and sometimes people never even really get to see the day in court to get their money. Fellow division second apartment ruled in my case that a freestanding actual innocence claim can be recognized under post-conviction motion. And they said that anybody that's innocent, the courts could no longer procedurally bar you. They got to reach the merits of your contentions. They just can't say, well, you should have raised this before, or your lawyer failed to do this before, or you should have did, you got to reach the merits of it. Get to the bottom line, Is this guy innocent or not. And when they gave me that opinion, it kind of like in itself, exonerated me because the prosecutor now had to hear my witnesses. I had alibis, I had police <laughs> officers who said, look, this guy was in New Haven, Connecticut, not Brooklyn when this murder happened. We mm. know because we've seen him there. He was at a party with him. I had a hotel receipts. I had many witnesses that could verify where I was at on the day that Daniel Cash was murdered. The courts were just throwing that evidence in the garbage. We, in fact, proved who committed the crime. The real murderer was present when the cops arrived. He was on parole for manslaughter. So these folks got all this counter evidence and all of this stuff, and this man still spent that much time in prison. Like, this is not, like, this is not most people's reality, but these type of things do happen. So, like, you got to judge every case on an individual case-by-case -case basis because you don't want to, like, count everybody in the same bucket. This is what I talk about when I talk about individuals, right? It's like some cop probably saw this young troubled dude back in his time and saw he was headed nowhere. I mean... 
I mean, what difference would it make to like pin a murder on this guy versus getting the guy who really did it? Like in, in the grand scheme of things, like it's probably one less thug off the street. Some people might feel that way, but like you don't know people's potential. You don't know each person's individual story, right? So in a way, we have to do our best to try to like control our biases and I and try to like, you know, see everybody for an individual. And I wish this guy nothing but the best of luck. I'm gonna see if he's creating any content or whatever. And y'all have to definitely go, you know, see if he's creating any content and check him out. See what kind of work he's doing. Uh Derek Hamilton, that's his name, Derek Hamilton. Uh, but yeah, I, I think he's doing pretty good. And you know, I'm interested to see what kind of you know role he takes from here. One in a million, a million, the one villain, too hot to be in the kitchen. I'll end up melting the ceiling.